Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CA144, America the Beautiful, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 254, November the 5th. 1991. This evening, Otto Scott, Douglas Murray, and myself will discuss a subject, again one su uh, suggested by one of you, but I forgot to bring my uh, file with me, so I'm sorry I cannot give credit to the one who suggested that we talk about America the Beautiful. I think I'm uh, perhaps the best person uh, to talk about that, not in any oh, uh, analytical terms, but in emotional terms, because uh, I come from a foreign background. I was born here not too very long after my parents arrived in New York City and I have a double ad advantage in assessing this country one I'm from an Armenian immigrant family and second I grew up in a Christian home that was uh, basically reformed then third, I can add that uh, we came out of the massacres of Armenians by Turks. That made a difference in my life because, of course, my earliest memories as a child are of various uh, relatives and other Armenians arriving and everyone coming together from 20, 40 miles around to see the newcomers and to ask them in the march into Russia, did you see my father or my mother or my son or my daughter, my brother, sister, and so on? And sometimes uh, the answer would be yes, I saw them dead the side of the road or floating in the river or the Kurdish uh, attack led to the seizure of several including your relative and so on so I didn't grow up under any illusions that this was a nice uh, good population that we had on the planet I was brought up with a belief in the total depravity of people. And I think that people today are very, very remiss, if I may take a while to develop this, very remiss in failing to educate their children into the fact of life, namely that man is fallen, that people are totally depraved. Otherwise, you go into the world expecting too much of people and 
are constantly disillusioned. Uh, one of the things that uh, happened was we moved from New York when I was six weeks old, settled in a California farming community, which was uh, mainly foreign-born. Uh, 90% Swedish, some Danes, a fair number of Portuguese, some Italians, and a fair number of Armenians. And there was hostility on the part of some of the Swedes, particularly around 1921 with the first farm crash, toward any newcomers who were able to buy the land because of their hard work as farmhands, or whatever, working in the canneries, saving up money to buy their own farm. And I can remember as a boy, uh, at night, uh, especially when my parents were gone, no one was there except my grandmother, uh, gangs of young hoodlums coming by, killing all the chickens in the chicken yard, throwing stones through the windows, and so on. I can also remember uh, being uh, faced with uh, the need to fight on the school grounds or having my lunch during the recess or sometime uh, thrown into a garbage can so I had nothing to eat. And I knew better than ever to go home and talk about that, about the fights or about my lunch or anything else like that, because I would have to been told, well, this is not heaven. Thank God you're not in Turkey. You wouldn't get into a fight there. You'd get your throat slit. Now, This is why to uh, all those people, one of the things that was a constant fact of prayer was to thank God for the United States, the land of liberty. And one generation after another of immigrants have come here, and almost all of them have come here with a belief that this is the land of liberty and compared to other countries it is. So I was brought up with uh, a great deal of delight in the fact that I was in this country. And for me, my childhood was a marvelous one. The incidents I have described were minor ripples on a marvelous life and let me say this we lived on a short road country road and our neighbors were all Swedish the Strids the Andersons the Swansons the Ponds all wonderful neighbors marvelous Christians so we couldn't blame Swedes because of a few hoodlums we knew how wonderful some of them were by the grace of God just as anyone else can be as wonderful. And that 
I think is what the United States still represents to people. And this is why at school when we would sing America the Beautiful, it was a song I loved because it had a great deal of personal meaning for me. I think it still does. I think I know as well as anyone all the faults of this country, all the very grievous waywardness that exists at the top today and at the bottom. But there is no other country in the world, even today, where the Christian community is more vocal and where the Christian community is doing more to further Christianity the world around than the American churches. In fact, uh, some years ago I read something by a foreigner who was a humanist who said uh, that the non-Christian humanists of the United States were really Christian heretics because they started the foreign aid program as a kind of misguided application of a Christian missionary principle. And that was both its uh, stupidity as well as a kind of foolish greatness. It was a very uh, interesting observation. So, with all its faults, America is still America the Beautiful, and I'm glad it was suggested that we talk on the subject. Douglas? Well, I think it's absolutely essential today that uh, parents with children sometime in the children's formative years, probably best is uh, uh, around 12 to 15 years old, that they uh, travel abroad in a foreign country because uh, it's virtually impossible for kids growing up in the United States to realize how great a contrast there is between what we have here in this country and uh, what's going on elsewhere. Uh, the first shock that I received going overseas as a young GI, 18 years old, <clears throat> was seeing a Hungarian refugee fleeing communist tanks, ran into Austria, and he was... Uh, eating out of a garbage can <clears throat> behind the mess hall and searching all of the garbage cans in the uh, in the area around the barracks where I was staying for any bit of clothing, uh, shoes, uh, worn out socks, anything that they could find. And I went and asked uh, the man, uh, why are you doing this? And he said he had been an accountant or something before he left Hungary and he says I would rather uh, live in poverty here than live under the heel of the Russian boot. And uh, I was just dumbfounded. I just had never seen human beings do that. I mean, of course, you can probably go down into Appalachia and in some areas of this country and see that kind of uh, poverty, but uh, it really opened my eyes that, you know, what we must have something special in this country. And um, the other thing is uh, 
I went down and voted today, and uh, there is no one standing outside with a submachine gun. You can still walk freely in and out of the, the polling booth, and that's a privilege that uh, an awful lot of people on the face of this planet do not have. Uh, they don't have any choices, or they don't, they can't vote uh, at all. And uh, although it's for, uh, it was for a minor post uh, on the uh, board, board of directors of a local fire district, still he spends my tax money, and I have a very keen interest in people that spend my tax money. And uh, so there are a lot of things in this country. You can walk into a supermarket and find uh, food available in this country that you can't find anywhere else. And they were showing on television this evening uh, Russians who are bartering cabbage for almost anything. Television sets, whatever they can get. Food is now king. Food is the currency of survival in Russia. And the people who grow cabbage can trade it for enormous sums. And a guy had a load of cabbage there and he was getting a half of a warehouse full of television sets and, and all kinds of stuff. It's a, they can't eat television sets. So if you can, uh, they're finding out uh, what what barter means and uh, how to survive over there. So you go into a supermarket here, and uh, unless a kid has been out of this country, uh, they just take everything for granted. So I feel it's a very necessary part of uh, a young person's education because the schools cannot impart that that contrast, that differential. There's no way with the multicultural educational uh, stuff that they're uh, uh, trying to utilize and with the foreign language uh, uh, programs that they have in the public school system, it still does not teach the kids what they've got here. And the kids grow up not appreciating the freedoms that they have and, and the, uh, the material things that are at their disposal. And the opportunities of there are that are there if they'll just reach out and take hold of them. Education. Uh, we probably have the most underutilized uh, educational establishment of any country in the world. We spend more money on education and get less for it simply because the kids don't reach out for it. It's like a plum on a tree and they just let it fall to the ground and rot. And that's the way uh, a lot of these things are, uh, are treated by our population. Um, well, I don't think that uh, your background has been that unusual. This is a country in which everyone has an immigrant background. The Irish have a long, hard history. They don't talk much about it. But no race has ever been more abused for a longer period of time, 700 years. My great-grandfather had a farm along the Hudson, 60 miles up from the river. My great-grandmother gave the farm to the church when she died and left her two sons to go to work on the brickyards with no property whatever. And it was a Revolutionary War area, New Windsor, New York, in Orange County. There was a Revolutionary War cemetery not far from where we lived, which wasn't even taken care of, didn't even have a plaque. 
the only reason we knew it was Revolutionary War was that some of the old stones still had that on it. And the McGivneys were working class people. And I'm sure you remember the working class people in the 20s and the 30s would get chicken on the holiday, hamburger, maybe once during the week, an outhouse in the back, and a very stark, but they didn't feel poor. I mean, they had a suit, paid their bill, they owned their home, so forth. I didn't have a happy childhood. I had a very unhappy childhood. My mother was very cruel, and mothers aren't supposed to be cruel, and there's no way that a boy could say this. I left home the first time when I was eight, and I slept out in the field, and I was brought back. And I kept running away at intervals after that. When I was about 13, we went down to Rio de Janeiro, and I ran away in Rio, and I was gone for over a month, something like six weeks as I remember it. And I went to work in a coffin factory as an apprentice. And I was turned in for the reward. And I was brought back by two soldiers from Sao Paulo, Brazil, to Rio. My plan was to stay down there until I was 21 and then to turn myself in as an American citizen. And uh, if it hadn't been for the reward, I think I would have pulled it off. I was sent back in exile to the McGivneys again. Uh, the Scots were well-to-do. The McGivneys, of course, were not. So it took a few weeks of adjustment on each end, each time. Uh, I missed the middle class somewhere along that line. And middle-class people still puzzle me because they don't like to face harsh words. They can face harsh situations, but they don't like to talk about them. They don't like to say it. And both the upper and the lower, in my experience, can be very blunt and will face the truth wherever it is. And uh, both my grandfathers in their separate ways were extremely candid men, and so to a great extent was my father. But I left home when I was 15 and a half. Happy boys do not leave home at 15 and a half. Nobody ever asked me why I left. I had no time. It was always assumed that uh, I was a bad boy. Look at all the grief you're bringing your mother was what uh, I usually heard and there was no there was no answer to that but I wandered across the country in 34 in 34 you were born in 34 you were in school finishing high school finishing high school and I took my school money because my father had come up to see me and my father was all right but he was never there he traveled he was busy I liked him, I admired him, but he wasn't there to protect me most of the time. And he was going to send me to school in Spain. He said, you will master Spanish, dominate Spanish was the phrase. You will study international law, 
and he described the University of Madrid. It had a wall around it. It had mass early in the morning. You then had uh, breakfast. You had class. The classes were finished about 3 o'clock. You were free then until about 9, I believe, 8 or 9 in the evening. Then you were locked up. And you were back in your room. It sounded like a prison to me. And also, I didn't trust him because he was a promoter. He sometimes went broke, and it never bothered him. He could go broke um, any time. It was all right. I felt that I'd get over there. I'd have a hell of a time with the language. He would not pay the bills. I would be humiliated. And I said, I don't think I'll do that. He said, as long as you live off my bounty, you will do what I say. And I said, I'll not live off your bounty anymore. I went up and packed, took my school money, and left. I never went back to live with my parents. I went back, I saw them, we became friendly and all that, but never again did I live off their bounty. I never forgot the phrase. I've never thought that my own children live off my bounty. I always thought that was a duty. But it was an interesting time. 34 was an interesting time to wander across the United States. I hitchhiked, no, I took a train to Albany. And then from Albany, I hitchhiked to Buffalo. I tried to join the Navy. It was a very cold winter, 34. Very cold. They weren't taking many anybody in. They had closed the recruitment. So then I took freight trains all the way across the country, in various parts of the country. And uh, there were lots of young boys and men on the road that year. They had hobo jungles all over the all over the country. I got odd jobs from time to time. I knocked on back doors. I had some bad experiences. I remember a train in Arizona in the summer. They stopped about 20 miles out in the desert, and the brakeman came along with a steel bar and forced us all off the train. I had to walk 20 miles in that sand and that desert and that heat. My face was swollen. I could barely see. And I haunted the yards, the railroad yards, for several days after that, looking for that fellow. I'm very glad I didn't find him. It was not something that I was going to overlook, and I finally came to my senses and said, well, we'll forget about it, and on. I remember in Ohio, we were, the train was stopped in a field, and a posse came and drove us all off, took us into a shed, that had a table, had photographs on the table of dead men. And they asked us if we'd ever heard of Lima Slim, a railroad detective who shot men dead for riding the trains without permission. And these were his victims, and they then took us in trucks to the edge of town to get out. California you couldn't get into because there was a strike, a general strike going on that summer, and the police... Uh, the police in it. The police came and told us not to go any farther, any closer to San Francisco. They had posters on the on the trees and the hobo jungles of the of the uh, strike breakers. And I picked apricots at, uh, along the Columbia River. 
lots of different things. I camped in Lake Whitefish through the summer when the uh, when the weather got cold. I went down to North Dakota to Fargo. In Fargo, they had a transient camp, and I was in the transient camp, three fifty a week, and they made me a clerk, five dollars a week, and then I became a clerk for. I've forgotten how much, maybe 15 a week, in the state capitol building. And I was transferred from there to Washington with the FERA administration. And finally, uh, from there to a camp, an adult camp in North Carolina. And from there, I finally got a newspaper job. And I was on my way. I grew to love the United States during those years. The people were decent. The poorer they were, the kinder they were. And I, I was in every part of the United States except upper New England. Never quite got around to that. And uh, there were, of course, in a childhood like that, rather unusual experiences in in Brazil, I remember we stayed at the Copacabana, which was the best hotel in the country, and there were little men out on a on a hill not too far away. They were making stone bricks out of a mallet and a, with a mallet and a hammer, and you could hear the chip, 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 chip going on all day long. My father took me out and said, you see those fellows? I said, yes. He said, uh, do they work hard? I said, yes. He said, how much money do you suppose they make? Well, I told him. I made a guess. He told me how much, some ridiculous sum. He said, let that be a lesson to you. Use your head. Well, I think it's a tribute uh, to the United States that uh, the Irish and other nationalities were willing to endure in effect slavery through indentured servitude to come to this country for the economic promise that it held. I doubt if there are very many people who are willing to work in a Russian gulag in order to become a Russian citizen. No, that's true. My grandmother, McGivney, Fitzgerald her name was, could speak Gaelic. She died in her 90s in the 60s. She said that the teacher came to the kitchen at night because Gaelic was against the teach Gaelic was against the law. The language was outlawed under the English. Now they didn't behave like the Turks, but they're the snottiest people in the world. And there are humiliations which almost equal death, which they were expert at inflicting. A very cruel race, a very subtle and very bright race, very smart, but very very cold and very cruel. My father, later on, when I visited him in Caracas, used to point out men and say he was under the this general and that general, he was in prison. He was there, he, this happened to him, this happened to the other fellow, up and down the ladder. And of course I saw a great deal of the world, 
between later travels, the sea, and so forth. I've been everywhere except Russia uh, and Australia. Uh, most of the other major areas I've been to. And not being raised uh, in a very Christian environment, uh, I had a belief in God, but it was very unformed, vague sort of thing. It was a matter of, of blind faith more than anything else. And I've, I have no newspaper work doesn't uh, impress you with the goodness of mankind. On the other hand, you don't have to find very many good people. You don't need very many good people. If you go into a room with a hundred men in it and you find an honest man, that's a great day. And you shouldn't forget that. And I also became very well aware, of course, that there's a very, very many smart people in the world. To learn the world as I did from the bottom up gives you a very interesting view of mankind. And I would rather have been self-taught than anything else. Otto, uh, you were wise to stay away from San Francisco during the general strike of 1934. I was there and I was working. Every day there were a number of dead bodies found floating in the bay. The longshoremen's strike was to be the beginning of a general strike that would bring about revolution in the United States. For years I kept the handouts we got at work. Pure Marxism, total revolution, and... Uh, the thing that uh, was startling to me was as I looked at them and I finally threw them away after a few moves I just had too much paper was first how totally Marxist they were and second how ignorant they were of this country they actually believed that all they had to do was to start a general strike in San Francisco after having first terrorized as many people and killed as many as they did. And it would catch fire with workers from coast to coast and turn us into Soviet America. Nobody has ever written the true story of that general strike. But the people behind it, even though they helped kill San Francisco as far as its position as a great port was concerned, were uh, so totally ignorant of the United States, it was as though they had never lived here. Then, some years later, Dorothy and I saw a case of a similar ignorance. We, well, I mentioned at the beginning that one of the things that made America so wonderful to me was that I had been brought up to believe in man's total depravity. 
the teachings of John Calvin. Now, there was a young man who came back from the Korean War who although he was nominally of the church actually knew nothing about the faith. Korea was a very poor country at that time and he saw poverty on a scale that staggered him uh, such as you talked about Douglas on a mass scale and he came back in a state of shock convinced there could not be a good God who permitted any such thing to happen and as I recall Dorothy tried to tell him that um, these things are a product of the fall of man man's sin but he couldn't see it because his view was so humanistic man was good God had to be bad to allow such things to happen and I think that's a great deal of our problem not only is our leadership today humanistic and therefore unrealistic like the people who started the general strike they have no more sense of reality in Washington than Harry Bridges and his crowd had in San Francisco and that's why they're going to fail Harry Bridges was a creature of smarter men. I knew Harry Bridges later on, and I liked him. Uh, he was an unusual fellow. He, uh, he would stand up, and he would get rather good if he was pressed. And the more pressure you put on Harry, the stronger he got. If he didn't have pressure, he would sit back, and he would sort of uh, diminish. Yeah, so I don't think... You know, Marxism in the United States in those years was very crude. Mm -hmm. It was really translations from another culture. Yes. And uh, they read like translations, and the uh, the language was wooden, and the people were rather strange, most of them frustrated types of one sort or another. I knew a lot of them, uh, which of course you would, because uh, I was in the newspaper business, and there was an awful lot of radicals around at the time. Most of them became unradicals later on, and they they went through the party, so to speak, very quickly. The uh, United States that I knew up through the 50s was a wonderful country. It is not a wonderful country today. The 60s probably by coincidence Mr. Mr. Kennedy came in it was a very strange thing to see uh, I was standing with the chairman of Ashton Oil in the airport in Washington D.C. during the riots and he's, we, we had the company jet waiting for that to pick us up and he said something about the president. The president, Johnson, was in the White House. He was in residence at the White House. I, I said, that SOB should be impeached. Yes. Because he's sitting on his ass while they're burning up the city. And the chairman looked at me with great surprise. This was a small-town liberal who had gone to the University of Virginia, who was very proud of getting minorities into the country club, 
and who believed, I guess, that we were living in some form of Disneyland. And he'd never heard anybody express those kind of sentiments about the President of the United States. But I came out of a much more realistic world. I know the difference between uh, right and wrong. I've seen the difference between right and wrong. And a country that has gone into a funk, as this one did, it came out of World War II as though it had lost, afraid of the Russians. And most of the men never saw action. They didn't hear a gun. They didn't, they didn't see any planes. They got medals for, I guess, mental agony. And it's as though a sickness overtook the land from the 60s onward. The inability to stand up and I was steeped in American history. And when I came back as a boy from Brazil, you can imagine how well, this, how good this country looked. I mean, it gives you bifocals to get out of the country when you're a child. I agree with you in this business. All, all kids should get out of the country because you have a double vision ever afterwards. You never get out of it. And of course I have it because I've done a lot of traveling. At, uh, there has been a great deal of ingratitude in this country, a tremendous amount of ingratitude. American history is written about by our historians now with a certain air of contempt. And the, uh, the America that you recognize, the basic America, is being mistreated. Mistreated. I still think the people are the same. I don't think people change. It's a polyglot country. It doesn't matter whether they're Swedes or Armenians or anything else. We had fights to the, practically to the death when I was a boy. <laughs> and it was, it didn't matter. The, there were Polish, Polish people who moved in and the Irish and the Polish used to have some wonderful fights. <laughs> My best friend was a Pol Polish boy who, who has to, had to come by the house and call for me, and my grandmother wouldn't let him in. She wouldn't invite him in. He was Polish. So I had to meet him outside. He died in the Battle of the Bulge. He was a wonderful man. And what's the, what's the little poem? Breathes there a man with a soul so dead who never to himself has said, this is my own, my native land. Yes. Where do you hear that anymore? Sir Walter Scott, we all had to memorize that when I went to school. Yes. Well, you mentioned 1960 as the turning point, and very rightly so. But in the providence of God, uh, things like that are used for good. Because 1960 also marks another date. It was then that the Christian school movement began to take off. Now, I think my intellectual schizophrenia on the Christian school movement came out in 1959. I had delivered it as lectures, oh, 57, I believe, and uh, outraged people. 
But after 1960, Camelot and all that uh, was uh, very appealing to the media. Yes. But the people on the ground level began to see something was wrong with the country. The Christian school movement took off so that Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon and Carter and Reagan and Bush have served a dramatic purpose. They've awakened the country to the humanistic and evil direction it's taken. And so we're having a revolution that people aren't aware of. Forty percent of the grade and high school children of the United States today are in Christian and home schools. So uh, the implications of what, say, Woodrow Wilson began came to the surface in someone like Kennedy and Roosevelt to begin with, but Kennedy and Johnson and the others, and people began to wake up. So we have two Americas now. Oh, yes. We have a thin governing class, which to me is a reproduction of the Ancien Regime. Yes. It's trivial and parasitic. Yes. And we have the people. Now, I think David Duke, and you brought his name up earlier, terrible background, of course, but is addressing issues that the others have not addressed. And uh, other men are going to come along to address those issues without his baggage. But I do think that we're going into a depression and I think it's going to be a different depression than the one that you and I knew, Russ. Yes. This one is going to have blood on it. It is going to be a depression with hyperinflation. We no longer have a hard currency. No. So that the money supply will increase. Paper money can only increase. While the economic sector, the jobs are going to be fewer and fewer. Right now, the most common complaint I hear, apart from those on our mailing list who have lost their jobs, and some in high places and others in low, is that their money is not going as far, and somehow they always end up the month with not enough. So uh, we are in a crisis, and I think the old order up at the top is going to be the loser. Douglas, you've been silent for a while. <laughs> well, I was uh, reading today, uh, they've begun to count up some of the victories that are taking place in the uh, uh, fight against pornography. Uh, uh, I feel very strongly that pornography is as um, much to blame for the... Uh, a lot of the misery, human misery in our society as the drug trade because they're both addictive and they both contribute to breakdown of the family. But apparently since the uh, Ed Meese uh, put together the Commission on Pornography and they issued their report, they have strengthened the laws and prosecutors around the country have begun to successfully prosecute uh, pornography kingpins and they put a lot of them behind bars and uh, although they're using the RICO Act, which I personally don't agree with, um, 
they are uh, they have closed uh, 25,000 pornography outlets and they've closed down the largest warehousing operation in the country which was operating I think out of Nevada and it, it, it has been a very fertile ground for organized crime uh, not only of the old mafia but the other uh, family type crime syndicates that have grown up both in the uh, the Mexican and the uh, and uh, the Orientals because they're very big on pornography but apparently some significant gains have been made in the past uh, three or four years so there uh, some progress has been made people have begun to speak out and they have begun to oppose the uh, the outlets of pornography all across the country. It's not just localized to the major urban areas. It's all across the country. In fact, there are some areas now that can claim claim to be pornography-free, mostly down the southeast part of the country, but significantly large areas, whole states, groups of states, two or three states together, are essentially uh, pornography-free. That would be... We have a more difficult problem we have many resources we have many bright people we have a growing Christian community we have lots of good uh, possibilities we also have larger problems I think than previous generations have had especially because of the growth of communications and the methods of communications the films, the tapes, the music the books and so forth because what has happened here has been a distortion of the American culture. And we're confronted with this enormous influx of Asians and Africans and other races and other religious groups, which is changing the de demographics of this country at a phenomenal rate. Now, this is happening to Europe also. It's going to happen to England even more after they open up the tunnel. But what we have here is what uh, what Hegel called the spirit of the age. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not very fond of Hegel, but the phrase is a very important phrase. You have children. You're up against the spirit of the age and fashion and fads and. The poison that's been poured into this country, intellectually speaking, is almost incredible. Not simply the, I mean, the pornography is well said, poisons the mind and the spirit. But there's been a twist, a curve given to our history. The Civil War, where white men died for black men, has been treated as though it didn't happen. And now we have a larger and larger group of resentful black people and we have other more recent immigrants who you feel like saying well we didn't ask you to come here to change the United States we asked you know you were a lot you came in here in order to change your own circumstances to become an American uh, I regard uh, well, all of us are Americans first last and always I don't feel Scots I don't feel Irish I don't fit in those countries. I couldn't transplant and be happy there. This is a very strong culture and you can't carry it. You can carry it around, but you can't change it very easily. And our problem is that not only do we have to train these young people, but we have to produce the truth for them against this avalanche. 
One of the best things in our favor is this, that these various groups are coming in. But they are recognizing the menace of the public schools. So that the number of blacks who have started Christian schools is growing by leaps and bounds. Well, that's very hopeful. Yes, well, in Go Get Your Stuff, yes. of course, you see yes. an e yes. example of that. Right. And that's been very alarming to the public uh, school systems that the blacks are moving so heavily into Christian schools. The Asiatics, uh, although they don't share uh, with the Christian school a common faith, are sending their children to Christian schools because they find that if their children are in the public schools in a short time, they are afraid of them. They are turned into dangerous. Yes. So, the Christian school movement is off and running, and this is why there is the voucher movement now being advocated here in this state by some humanists. The movement to will control, kill, yes. kill private schools altogether. Yes, it's and that's their purpose. So, uh, the Christian school movement is working a revolution in the country. And uh, you visited uh, Dr. Ellsworth McIntyre. Yes. Look at all the children he's reaching. Right. Uh, the majority of them are not Christians. Yes. And he is going to shape them for life. He has them from the ages of two to five. Now he's going to buy a high school, and he's going to fill in all the grades in between. He has five or seven schools already and is uh, building them almost every year. Now, this is the kind of thing that's happening that is phenomenal. And uh, it's a revolution that is underway, and it's a Christian revolution. You rightfully uh, titled our symposium, The Great Christian Revolution. And uh, it's underway again, rolling at, uh, in a remarkable way. And the opposition is very, very much afraid of us. Well, shooting the Niagara Falls in a canoe is lots of fun, you know. <laughs> well, I had a top executive uh, officer of a corporation call me recently. He had come across our material and was startled because he didn't know such thinking existed. Mm -hmm. So this is what's happening. And we had evidence last night, we won't go into it, of the kind of impact we are having. So it's an exciting time in which to be alive in a great country. Uh, we're in for a, a battle, I believe, which is going to be the toughest in all of history.
It's going to be very tough. But <clears throat> Bush is in his late 60s. He's the last of the World War II presidents that we're going to have. <clears throat> and if he is reelected, which is now somewhat chancy, uh, although I think he probably will because the Democratic Party is in such a terrible condition, uh, Cuomo is not a very good candidate. Uh, he's thin-skinned. Uh, he's a very deceitful man. And uh, it's very hard to come from the streets of New York and sell a bill of goods to the United States. But the Bush generation is moving off the stage. My generation, you might say, is in political terms is moving off the stage. And new and younger men are coming up who have grown up under the liberals under this forced compassion and caring that they've talked so much about, which has turned every one of their stomachs. And they're going to be different breed. Bush and his kind are moving off stage, Otto. But you and I and Douglas and the rest of our group are moving on center stage. And I believe that. Well, the... Uh the humanists, I uh, believe, operate in the philosophy uh, that that saying that uh, there's no limit to what you can accomplish as long as you don't care who gets the credit. And uh, our position uh, is and should be there's no limit to what you can accomplish as long as the Lord gets the credit. Yes, exactly. And the Lord is at work, and I think this is the most exciting period in all of history in which to be alive. Well, it's um, the period that God selected for you to be alive in, yes. so it's good that you feel that way. <laughs> well, my hope is uh, that I live long enough to see some of these bastards get it in the neck and uh, our side uh, You want to win? Rise. I want to win, and I believe we're going to win by the grace of God. Well, is there a last comment either of you have to make? Our time is running out. You say, sum it up for us, Doug. Well, I, the, uh, all of us uh, go through lots of experiences in our lives, and things seem to move very, very slowly, but it seems like the pace of, of uh, life is uh, speeding up in this time that we're living in. And uh, I think that we'll see change more rapidly than we uh, are accustomed to. Yes. When change occurs, it always surprises people because it occurs zip like that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all for listening. And to the woman whose name I did not bring with me who suggested America the Beautiful, thank you. It has been a particular delight to deal with this subject. We uh, don't feel confident to deal with all the subjects that some of you suggest, and some of them I don't think we could talk more than uh, four or five minutes on, <laughs> because not all subjects lend themselves to an extended uh, discussion. But we do appreciate your suggestions, and uh, although... We 
don't always give you credit for the idea because I get absent-minded sometimes. Uh, we're grateful for uh, your suggestions and uh, do pass them on to us. Thank you and God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules dot com